Literature makes you feel, and it can get you thinking, too. But how do you move from science on the page to thoughts and feelings? And why does fiction sometimes feel more real than the world around us? My name is Stijn Vervaat, and together with my colleagues from the Literature, Cognition and Emotions Project, LCE for short, we will discuss these and other questions in the coming weeks. Today's guest is Karin Koukkonen, full professor in comparative literature at the University of Oslo and convener of LCE. Karin's research stretches from cognitive literary studies and narratology all the way to comics. The topic of our conversation today is her latest book, Probability Designs, Literature and Predictive Processing. Thank you for joining us, Karin. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Um, your book, Karin, is very much, or first and for foremost, at least as how I see it, a book about reading literature. One of the key questions you discuss is, to put it simply, how we as readers respond to and experience literary text, and how meaning-making arises in our non-linear interaction with the text. But what kind of reader does probability designs have in mind? Is it a kind of universal reader, a reader with scholarly training, or a beginning reader who has only had some experience from listening to stories? Or is it any experienced reader? Do all of us more or less follow the same patterns you describe when reading fiction? Wow, yes. Um, well, it is very much a book about reading um, and about what it is to read literature and be taken by the experience. Um, to specify what kind of reader, that's quite difficult. I mean, my most immediate response would be to say that the books or the novels that I discuss in Probability Designs are my favorite novels. Um, so, so in a way, yeah, I, I've picked out things that I find most interesting as a reader myself. And then I've tried to figure out what is it that makes them special. But at the same time, you've distinguished some patterns that could also or do also apply to other novels, right? Yeah. I mean, the, the idea is that any kind of novel has this thing I call probability design, that there is a design in the text that changes your expectations as you move through it, so that there is a, an ongoing development between the reader and the text as you go page by page from the beginning to the end, or sometimes you might skip a chapter or you read the ending before you start, that kind of thing. So I'm interested in, in the sort of ongoing development of what happens between a literary text and its reader. Yeah, because a text's design, because your title is probability design, so literary texts have a kind of design which then manipulates reader, if I understood it correctly. Or at least you start from the text design for theoretical discussions, right? So how do readers then navigate this literary text and how does the text then maybe manipulate uh, the reader? Or maybe we as readers, we want to be manipulated? I don't know. Because the text caters to our uh, expectations by providing cues or triggers or information that leads to predictions on the side of the reader, but also to what you call prediction errors that will invite us to reassess earlier predictions. Mm. Is that right? Yeah. So it's it's always a give and take or mm -hmm. a kind of tango, if you will, be between the text and the reader, um, where you have a certain kind of expectation based on 
you know, what, what's on the cover, where you find it in the bookshop. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe you know the author. Yeah. Um, and what the text then starts giving you. And as that develops, uh, certain patterns are established. So you can, mm -hmm. you can run your predictions and you, you can have the sense that you make progress through mm -hmm. the narrative. But then inevitably, in any interesting narrative, there will be a point where you're wrong in your mm -hmm. predictions. And that's when it gets interesting. Mm -hmm. Because then you start wondering, why am I wrong? Mm -hmm. um, where can I find an explanation for what's going on here? That's when the real intrigue starts uh, in a narrative. Mm -hmm. And when the texts become perhaps interesting also to the reader. Mm. Yeah? Uh, if everything is predict predictable, then why would we continue reading? Right? Then you don't need to finish the book, no. Yeah. But um, to get back to this probability design of the text, is it something we can understand best at the level of plot or style or genre? Or does it function on different levels uh, simultaneously, perhaps? You devote quite some space to plot, which you call quite aptly the ugly duckling of narratology. So perhaps we could start, um, or you could, yeah, we could start our investigation of, or your investigation mm. of plot as a way of exploring how this predictive processing works more specifically. Yeah, yeah, it's it's quite interesting that in the sort of scholarly tradition devoted to narrative mm -hmm. plot. Um, at least in recent years, has not gotten a lot of attention. Mm -hmm. um, part of that might have to do with the fact that it's generally considered to be more advanced to think about character development, mm -hmm. round characters, to think about uh, phenomenological depth, um, to think about the, the, the realness of experience. Mm -hmm. Whereas plot is always something um, that is a bit too contrived. Mm -hmm. That is too made. That that has the that smacks of of the artificial, mm -hmm. or of detective fiction, or, or of detective <laughs> fiction. Um, whereas, of course, if you look into the longer tradition of theorizing about literature, yeah. um, at least in the Western tradition, um, if you start with Aristotle, mm -hmm. plot is central. Yeah. Um, plot is everything, uh, and plot, at least as far as I understand it, is is sort of the um, it, it sort of gives the trajectory, the drive to a narrative. Hmm. Yeah, I guess plot is also, for quite a few readers, the main reason why they're reading, right? Yeah, I mean, they, they want to know what's going to happen, mm -hmm. how a situation gets resolved, um, what a character will do, how someone will respond. Um, all these very basic questions that, I guess... In real life, we don't always take the time to ask, but mm. be when we're in a probability design, we're sort of forced to ask that question because otherwise we can't follow the story as it goes on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but uh, you relate probability design not only to the level of plot, but also move on to style and um, what you call the mental library, right, mm. to intertext. Or so could you say something about how this then works on these other two levels, if I may call them levels? Yeah, I think uh, levels, different steps in a, in a cascade mm -hmm. of reading. I guess one of the things that hasn't helped plot is the fact that we usually take very simple narratives in order to illustrate plot. And, mm -hmm. and I've done the same thing in the book. I, I've taken fairy tales. a fairy tale, mm -hmm. uh, Cinderella, as an example of, of how plot works. 
and how all the the different transformations of the the coach into the pumpkin and all of that how how all of these work as prediction errors that mm-hmm. drive the the sequence of the narrative literally in in the case of the pumpkin coach yeah. that drive it um mm-hmm. to the end but on top of that of course um you do have all the linguistic features mm-hmm. and the ver- the french version the peru version of of cinderella that i discuss has some yeah quite specific linguistic features that build suspense for mm-hmm. example um that mark certain characters in a particular mm-hmm. way which then makes you as a reader well either you like them because you think you're kind of like them mm-hmm. or you despise them so there is a lot going on 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 a second order level yeah. through the use of language mm-hmm. that um constantly interacts um with a plot that constantly puts your attention on on different aspects of the story yeah so it is completely impossible to disentangle language or from a lit- in the literary text from plot right we as readers we respond both to the plot and to the language that is used whether it's the language of the narrator or the the language used by the characters themselves yeah i would say so um i guess perhaps the best way of thinking about it is that we're when when we understand the narrative we constantly run on on different levels and mm-hmm. and sometimes the plot level is faster yeah. than the style level mm-hmm. sometimes it's the other way around mm-hmm. sometimes the style level is quite dominant um i'm thinking of a book that came out i think 2 years ago which is called ducks newbury port by lucy elman mm-hmm. um it's an 800 page book okay um which is made of i think eight sentences eight sentences eight sentences um mm-hmm. and they all run in the same pattern the fact that the fact that and then you mm-hmm. then that gets filled out with different descriptions so their style is kind of everything yeah. not an easy read i can imagine well <laughs> i think i don't think it's actually a very difficult read because okay. you do have i mean it it does get repeated mm-hmm Um I think what makes it difficult is that uh, you don't know where to leave it. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. you you don't usually read 2-300 pages in one go. Yeah. Which is what you kind of would have to. Mm-hmm. If you want to finish the sentence. Well, or, or get to a point where you can it's quite difficult to tell where you can leave yeah. it and then get mm-hmm. back into it. Mm-hmm. Um so I think in that sense it's a difficult book. Yeah. Um but not necessary. I mean if you let the language take you Mm-hmm. I don't think it's particularly difficult to read. But the interesting thing there is that elements of you know what happens to that character whose stream of thought we're mm-hmm. following that starts to creep in and after a while you understand okay mm, here is something happening mm-hmm. that she doesn't explicitly talk about in that stream of consciousness. Yeah. Um but that obviously is is what is going on here. Mm-hmm. So their style runs if we take this um multiple speed metaphor mm-hmm. their style runs a lot faster yeah. and and plot comes later but mm-hmm. it can of course be the other way around mm. but in this in addition to plot and style you uh distinguish something you call the third order probability design and this you call the the mental library or how we relate to to other texts right when when reading so could you tell us something more about this third order this third order the yeah. mental library mm-hmm. yeah um it is perhaps close to um what um 
has been called a sort of horizon of expectation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's a horizon of expectation that's based on basically all the other things that you've read. Mm-hmm. Um, all the other things that um, inform how you understand what you read. Mm-hmm. So the, the Ducks Newbury Port, a lot of people have compared it to Joyce or okay. Virginia yeah. Woolf. Mm. Um, so you would read it with that frame of mind. Mm-hmm. Um, but Elman does something quite different, which you start noticing after mm-hmm. a couple of hundred pages. So the mental library is, is sort of the, um, the... It's the books that you have around you in your mental space mm-hmm. um, as you read. Yeah. And they will um, guide your attention. They will inform what you're looking for when you're reading. Within the text. Within yeah. the text. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the books you have in your backpack when you're reading and you sometimes you have them in your head, sometimes you consult them and mm. then you come up with uh, another interpretation or another... Yeah. Uh, or you adjust your expectations of the texts you're reading. Yeah, or if if you've just read something quite striking and then you read another book, quite often mm-hmm. the second book will be colored by... Yeah what you've read before. Mm, I see, yeah. If you read Anna Karenina mm-hmm. after reading War and Peace, yeah. you will read it quite differently from how you would read it after Crime and Punishment. Okay, yeah. But when using the notion of probability design, um, what about reader's agency then? Is everything already fixed by the design of the text or is there something left to the individual reader's choices, predilections, preferences, character or reading habits? Yeah, I don't know how, how you see this. Is everything set in stone and you just, as a reader, you have to go through this design and... Well, I mean, it's not set in stone. It's it's written in ink, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if, mm-hmm. if anything. Um, well, I think the, the really interesting thing about literary probability designs is that even though this is a structure that you go through, mm-hmm. um, as, as you're reading... And there are certain things that happen in a story. Um, and there is a drive, a trajectory to it. It's nevertheless also flexible mm. um, in the sense that depending on how you go in, um, you can choose to focus on different things. Yeah. Um, you can choose to draw your own inferences. You can choose to decide that you really like the villain mm-hmm. um, of this novel, for example. Yes, so you can. <laughs> Whoever. For example, mm-hmm. um, though, is he the villain? Yeah, that's a question for another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but as, as mm-hmm. you see, I mean, even though yeah. this is a probability design, um, mm-hmm. different readers can have different opinions. Yeah. You can have different mm-hmm. um, emotional investments. Uh, you can read the ending, I think, of Crime and Punishment quite mm-hmm. differently, mm-hmm. depending on um, your own convictions. Yeah. Or plans. Or plans, well, <laughs> how you feel about <laughs> Napoleon. Uh, um, so there is uh, a lot of flexibility in, in um, the probability design, which I think uh, goes a long way to account for why literature appeals to many different people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and also why we can, you know, come back to texts after, well, in the, in the case of Crime and Punishment, yeah. uh, 150 years. Mm-hmm. or even much longer periods of time. 
Now, when when discussing readers' agency um, and who's in control of what, then I, I would like to turn to a, an important topic. You, at least as far as I can see it, you uh, an important move that you make in your book, which is bringing in intention intentionality uh, back to the debate. Because after new criticisms, influential rejection of authorial intention as a fallacy, I think this re this is really. Um, interesting to see how, how you rethink uh, intentionality. So how should we understand this and how does it intertwine with probability design in, in, in your view? Yeah, I mean, intentionality is, is obviously a, a highly complicated mm -hmm. topic. And I think there are very good reasons that literary criticism said, um, let's not ask what the author had for breakfast. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, it's also undeniable, I think, when you're reading that you have a sense that, you know, someone did this for a reason, mm -hmm. um, that it's, it's not entirely coincidental that I'm reading, um, this event after another event, mm -hmm. someone put it there for a reason. And of course, when you look at authors' manuscripts, you can see mm -hmm. that they spend a lot of time adjusting how they express themselves, what the yeah. sequence of events is, writing in and out characters, giving the story a new ending, all of that. Mm -hmm. um, so there is, I think, a, an intention or an intentionality there, mm -hmm. um, but it's one that is not very easily described in, in terms of a simple proposition. But now that you mentioned um, manuscripts and manuscript studies, uh, Would, wouldn't some of your claims or insights about uh, intentionality and, and intention, intentional design move also well beyond the reading process and into a discussion, a broader discussion of uh, creative processes more generally? So couldn't perhaps some of the concepts or the dynamics you described also be used to study the writing process? Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, that's actually what I'm working on at mm -hmm. the moment um, because that sort of seems to be the next logical step. Yeah, so I made a good prediction here. You made a very good <laughs> prediction, yes. <laughs> um, th this question of how do you build a design that's not there yet? Mm -hmm. um, how do you um, develop that um, sequence of, of words, events, etc., so that it makes sense? Yeah. Um, that it makes sense that it has a coherence, but at the same time that it is also flexible enough. Yeah. Mm. Um, to, to allow different readers to do, see different things. And here I think, yeah, looking at how authors themselves experimented mm -hmm. in manuscripts um, is, is very interesting. I've done some work on manuscripts for my previous book, mm -hmm. How the Novel Found Its Feet, where I look at Frances Burney, mm -hmm. um, an 18th century author who is famous for her novels, but who also had the ambition to write plays. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there are some um, early manuscript drafts for her plays um, that, that we still have. And I remember this moment sitting in the library and you get the box. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's just small pieces of paper with individual lines mm -hmm. and some slightly bigger pieces. And then you sort of you try to reconstruct, you know, yeah. what, what the author was doing quite materially, mm -hmm. um, quite physically, how... She went from that to um, a written set of dialogues or a scene in a drama. And they, I think you can see why 
it is a question of intentionality, but it's a very playful intentionality. It's it's you, you sort of you, you're sort of trying to figure out what it is you want to say. Um, so you're developing um, your intentionality as an author as you work with the material. And with Bernie, after a while, I, I managed um, to figure out that she actually would rearrange these individual lines. Mm -hmm. um, so they were lines from the dialogue, but she would rearrange who says them. Okay. And yeah. in what scene they appear. So it's it's kind of like... Um, um, it's it's a bit like a puzzle or it's it's um like the sort of cut up um mm -hmm. technique that you have in in some of the 1960s 1970s mm -hmm. american um poets but this uh, yeah this interaction between um, an author's intentions and the materials is also more complex right you you call this back and forth process the effect of i quote a coupled system where Cognitive, uh, where a cognitive process emerges that depends on the mind, the body, and the material. So could you elaborate a bit on, on this? I mean, we've had the intention and the materials, but what with the mind and body? Well, the mind and body is, of course, the thing that keeps them together. Yeah. Um, I guess as far as the intention is concerned, I would say the intention only emerges mm -hmm. after you have this coupled system of uh, an author and her papers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um. And the, the idea there, so this is a, a term that um, comes from philosophy uh, when people talk about the extended mind, mm -hmm. um, this, this idea that um, we can think further if we have some materials, some technologies mm -hmm. to help us. Yep. And an obvious technology is, of course, pen and paper. Yeah, and also the possibility of rearranging things when you have it on paper, which would be perhaps much more difficult when it's just going on in your, in yeah. your mind, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm. I think one of the things that these little slips of paper allowed Bernie to do is to say, well, does this character need to say that? Yeah. Or mm. could someone else have said it? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that allows new possibilities and developing of character, um, for example. So there is something in the very materiality that allows for developments in style in this case. Mm-hmm. Um, in the mind of the author and then later, of course, in, in her writing as well. Could we say to a certain extent that we have a similar dynamics on the part of the reader as well? You talk a lot about the embodied reader. So as readers, we all have bodies and even though we might sometimes wish to escape them while mm. reading, we inevitably involve our bodies in the process of meaning making. Yeah? So literary theorists and empirical scholars have approached this question from different angles often stressing the importance of motion verbs, indications of direction and descriptions of bodily states that invoke a kind of embodied simulation or resonance in the reader. So could you explain this a bit further and, and tell us how you link embodiment in reading to predictive processing? Mm -hmm. I, I shall try. I guess in a way you can think of the reading process as similarly but not equally creative as the writing process. Mm -hmm. Because you start with some expectations, some predictions, and you then get these pieces um, that either fit the pattern or they don't. And if they don't fit the pattern, then you need to adjust your expectations, mm -hmm. the, the probability, the sense of probability that you have. Mm -hmm. Or you need to find other evidence that either confirms your own predictions or disconfirms this other evidence that you have found. So you, as a reader, you're constantly... 
um, scoping. You're constantly exploring and discovering in a text. Um, some of that um, is, is a question of where you direct your attention. Mm-hmm. And here, the bodies um, of characters often tend to be attention-grabbing, especially when they're in movement. Mm-hmm. So one of the ways in which predictive processing and embodiment is connected mm-hmm. is that the very movement of characters, but also the movement and rhythm of sentences, yeah. um, for example, is something that adjusts um, what you pay attention to, where you direct um, your scoping, yeah. Because um, rhythm, rhythm is such a bodily thing. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Mm. But when we read, we can uh, we can experience a sense of presence, even though we cannot, different from a piece of visual art, walk around the literary text and observe it from from different sides. So, how do literary texts then help us or lure us into in the fiction of of presence, and, and what does then happen to our body in in this reading yeah. process? Um, it's quite right that uh, you can't. Yeah, well, you can walk around the book, but it's not going to do much good. Mm. It's not the same as taking different points of view on a painting mm-hmm. or a statue. I yeah. guess the statue is mm-hmm. an, an even better example. But what you can do um, is to develop um, different senses of how the story could have developed. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be on on a sort of plot level. Yeah. That you open a, a counterfactual space mm-hmm. where different mm-hmm. things are possible, and each of these possibilities has its own probability. They're all likely to a different extent, mm-hmm. to a do different you, degree. Do you think of fan fiction here, or not necessarily? Not necessarily. Um, I think fan fiction is is one of the um, the phenomena where, where this gets most obvious. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That you actually would have wanted Mm -hmm. this character to survive or to fall in love with someone else. Mm -hmm. But the author doesn't give you that, so you write it yourself. Um, I think that is the most obvious um, example and perhaps the example where that is taken to the the greatest length. I think that happens all the time when we read, Mm -hmm. um, that we work with these counterfactuals Either because we think this might actually be a more interesting option or because um, we um, have read the novel before and now we want to read it differently. Mm-hmm. So one of the things you could do, for example, is if you read Anna Karenina, you read it as if Karenin is the hero mm-hmm. <laughs> and you will have a quite different reading experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when you create this counterfactual space which engages you um, in, a, a, in a new way. Yeah. Um, that idea of um, opening up different um, angles is also something that works on the level of um, very simple embodied verbs. Since you asked me about the link yeah. between mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, presence and, and embodiment, and one of the things that has been shown and, and discussed in, in cognitive literary studies is that the parts of texts that we find have the greatest presence mm-hmm. are the ones where we get um, verbs that describe bodily stage states both from the inside and the outside. Mm-hmm. So you see how someone, I don't know, blushes, yeah. and you also get a description that her her breath stops yeah. mm-hmm. or something like that. And then you might get, um, I don't know, a couple of sentences of what goes on in their minds. So in that sense, um, by... On the one hand, you get 
what goes on in their minds. But on the other hand, you also get this um, emotional basis, which is rooted in the body and which readers will quite likely experience a resonance mm -hmm. to. You sort of get to have multiple angles on the same experience. Again, that is something that helps with presence. Yeah. So I think that works mm -hmm. in, in multiple contexts. And we have empirical studies about how, how uh, readers respond to these uh, motion verbs, to the ways in which texts lure us into this bodily yeah. state, right? Yeah. Mm. I mean, that has been done. Um, I expect it's very difficult to do with a literary text. Yeah. Um, it's most often done with um, short texts mm -hmm. that have very clear examples of yeah. these are inner states um, or these are very clearly... Um, a set of words that describe a particular um, bodily experience. Mm -hmm. So in, in order for this to work, I think in an experimental setting, it has to be very clean. Whereas in literary texts, mm -hmm. um, it tends to be more complicated. Yeah. Uh, a few minutes ago, you, you mentioned opening up a counterfactual space in our minds when, when reading a, a fictional narrative. In your book, at some point, you note, and this is one of my favorite one-liners, literature is a place where you can watch yourself think. So scholars have often used metaphors such as immersion, absorption, transportation, or being in, in the flow of reading to, ex to describe the experience of reading that we were discussing a, a minute ago. But how does this observing ourselves thinking, you refer to work, when we are completely observed in the, in the work of fiction or in the fictional world? we're reading about. So does this thinking then happen in the breaks in between or in moving back and forth between being absorbed by the text and what you call mind-wandering, moments of absent-mindedness that remind us of meditation? Or how do you see this? Yeah. Well, I think fundamentally um, reading literature is always something that um, allows us to have this yeah, this, this commentary track in the head, mm. um, which can be more or less verbalized. Um, a, a sense of it's right that this is happening or mm -hmm. they, they really should have, or the author really should have paid more attention to that. Mm -hmm. um, two, oh, she is like my aunt. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> yeah. so, so there are multiple possible mm -hmm. responses yeah. in which you yourself uh, are the, the sounding board, you're the resonance board mm -hmm. of the text that you read. Um, so I think actually in order to be immersed, mm -hmm. um, you need to have that track yeah. running. And that is a metacognitive track mm -hmm. where you sort of look at um, what does this remind me of? Um, also, of course, if, when you're in the flow of reading, you often get a sense of, oh, I'm, I'm doing quite well, you know, <laughs> yeah. especially when, when reading something like um, Doug's Newburyport. Mm -hmm. um, after a while, when you get the hang of mm, mm -hmm. the fact that, uh, you feel quite pleased with yourself. Um, so I think there is a sense in which um, reading actually allows both for a very intense understanding of an experience through w what we've discussed with mm -hmm. presence, that you get these multiple perspectives mm -hmm. on an experience, but also um, on the level of how you relate this to yourself. There's always a loop mm -hmm. um, where in order to open that counterfactual space, you supply that with your own um, wishes, your own expectations, your own 
sense of uh, what is likely to be the case. You mentioned um, a kind of metacognitive uh, track that you run in your head while reading, but sometimes we have also narrators who provide us with such a track. And isn't this then kind of disturbing our reading flow or our own reflections upon the novel how, or the, the story? How do you see this? Yeah, I think um, readers respond quite differently um, to these um, narrators who tell you what it is they're doing right now or mm -hmm. who comment on what characters are up against or on about. Um, I think there are obviously some readers who have more tolerance for mm -hmm. that yeah. <laughs> and some readers who find it quite annoying. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, there are then novels suited to both temperaments. I mean, you can read Hemingway or mm -hmm. you can read Henry Fielding. Mm -hmm. So the choice is, is yours. Yeah. Um, but I do think even if you read uh, something that is written, um, as long as it's literature in as, as simple a style as possible, it still opens um, the, this meta-cognitive yeah. uh, track mm -hmm. while reading. Yeah, then I, I would like to talk a bit about what you call literature as a form of extended cognition. Literature, you know, it works as a, a life world technology. So how should we understand claims that the literary text functions as an extension of cognitive processes happening in our brain? At the beginning of your book, you refer to a wonderful quote from the philosopher Merleau-Ponty, which I cannot resist citing here. I quote, Without any explicit calculation, a woman maintains a safe distance between the feather in her head and objects that might damage it. She senses where the feather is, just as we sense where our hand is. End quote. Where does Merleau-Ponty's metaphor get us when thinking of literature as extended cognition? Mm. Yeah, the reason I chose that metaphor is that in order to give, um, well, in order to come to an understanding of the feel of reading, mm -hmm. um, I think it, it is quite apt to think of it as uh, a feather, which you sort of know is there, um, but you only barely sense. Um, the much more famous part of um, that passage from mm -hmm. Merleau-Ponty is the blind man with a cane mm -hmm. um, who is tapping about uh, in order to orient himself. And mm -hmm. there are people who have used that as a metaphor for what reading is like. Yeah. But I think most of the time, actually, we're not tapping around. Um, we have a pretty good sense of where we're going, what we're doing. Um, mm -hmm. So when I talk about exploring uh, as a reader a text, yeah. usually that doesn't feel like so much work. Yeah, a Usu stepping in the dark. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Usually it is like, yeah, making sure your feather doesn't hit the door frame mm -hmm. because, mm -hmm. yeah, you know it's there, you know the door frame is there, but you have a good enough um, mastery of the situation mm -hmm. that you can do this with ease. I mm -hmm. guess that is probably the word I would use. It's, mm -hmm. it's done with ease. It's done in a light way when you read. But doing things with ease is also something that the text itself helps us with, right? Yeah. Because uh, you stress uh, a lot the, the role of form, of the form of a literary text. So you talk about the affordances of a literary text, things literature can do for us, or literature can help us train cognitive capacities from memory to theory of mind, or which is the ability to 
attribute mental states to others, all the way to training perhaps empathy. But in all these processes, you argue the form of the literary text plays a decisive role. So could you comment a bit upon, upon this? Yeah. Yeah, I think that link that you made between the ease with which um, you read and the literary text that mm -hmm. is the thing that makes it possible mm. is, is very important to remember. Um, that, I mean, in, in real life, I think we quite often have, yeah, like a, a meta commentary going on, mm -hmm. but it's not anywhere near as focused as it can be in response to a, a literary text. Mm -hmm. um, it's not anywhere near as easy, I think, to get into a state of concentration. Mm -hmm. Like when you're reading a book and you're in the flow of reading, yeah. um, it's reasonably easy to be concentrated on that and your own um, back and forth as mm -hmm. a reader with the text for a good amount of time. Mm -hmm. I think in, in a real-world context, it would be impossible <clears throat> to maintain that degree of attention, concentration, mm -hmm. redoubling uh, of attention mm -hmm. across multiple levels. Is um, it because we tone down our ex the external impulses that we can concentrate or because the form of the text draws us into the text so that we do it automatically? Do? It's both. Mm -hmm. It's both. I think the, the very fact that we're reading something helps. Yeah. Um, the very fact that we're concentrating on a low bandwidth mm -hmm. um, input, yeah. that this, these are words printed on, on paper. Yeah. Um, not very many letters going into it, at mm -hmm. least not uh, in, in Western languages. Yeah. That we have something that is quite simple to work with, to generate um, mm -hmm. the, this experience. So in, in that sense, it's it, it's just a technology of, of reading and writing yeah. um, that makes it fundamentally possible. But then on top of that, I think in order to have this doubleness of being immersed and reflecting on it at mm -hmm. the same time, in order to go in and out um, of what's going on here and how this relates to you, mm -hmm. uh, in order to predict how the story is going to end while yet at the same time feeling very strongly with mm -hmm. the main character. Yeah. Um, for that, you do need it to be written in a literary form. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so in that sense, I, I think what, what literature does with probability designs is it gives a shape, a form to language, mm -hmm. which allows us to think um, in, in complex ways, in flexible ways, while yet being concentrated. Mm -hmm. that arguably no other cultural artifact um, allows us to achieve. So are we back at the kind of um, upgrading the Russian formalists' understanding of literariness here? Um, yes, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I will not deny uh, the influence of the Russian formalists. Um, mm -hmm. And you will find a, a chapter on... Um, um, Gogol's overcoat uh, mm -hmm. in in the book. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, I I think their insights on um, how literature, on the one hand, is is very closely entwined with everyday life, with mm -hmm. everyday language. Mm -hmm. yeah. So it is not um, um, an, an overly aestheticized, no. as in an, mm -hmm. uh, detached. It's not detached from life. 
And I think their interest is exactly in how literature can reshape that experience mm -hmm. um, to give us a new insight, um, to make something visible uh, in ourselves, in our engagement with ourselves that we couldn't see without um, getting a helping hand from the design mm -hmm. of the literary text. Yeah. So I think the idea is quite similar from what you find in Shklovsky, mm -hmm. um, for example. But the theoretical framework of predictive processing, um, which allows you to link it very specifically to mm -hmm. particular cognitive processes, yeah. um, allows us to be much more precise yeah. about how mm -hmm. this actually works, to move beyond um, sort of anecdotes and observations mm -hmm. into something that paints a bigger picture. Thank you. Well, to conclude, I would like to ask you whether you have any reading recommendation for the listeners. I do. Um, I mean, beyond uh, all the books that I discuss in Probability mm -hmm. Designs, yeah. um, I'd like to recommend a book that came out, um, I think, last year mm -hmm. by Anne Weber, which is called Annette, ein Heldin Epos, an, an epic, Annette, an epic I think in English. I think there is an English translation now. Uh -huh. um, she's a German author um, who lives in Paris and translates herself mm -hmm. into French. And in that book, she decides to write the life story of a woman called Annette, who, mm -hmm. who exists, uh, who, whom uh, she's met, um, who fought in the Resistance yeah. um, mm -hmm. And also in the Algerian wars, okay. she was involved yeah. in that. Mm -hmm. So a, a good part of French history in, yeah. in the 20th century is something that this woman has lived. And um, Anne Weber decided to write a, a book about it, mm -hmm. but she chose not to write a novel or a biography, but an epic. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. And it's, I mean, it's... As, an, as far as epic goes, it's, it's with a light touch. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's written in free verse. Yeah. Uh, it's quite readable. Um, and I think just this experiment of, of turning something which has uh, historicity and which asks for an, an authentic treatment mm -hmm. into uh, a genre like the epic yeah. um, is something that provides um, a very interesting probability mm -hmm. um, design. I think it's something mm -hmm. that it ha has a great drive when you're reading okay. it. Okay. And also um, a form that is very specific, I a guess. A form that is, is very specific. Um, and, of course, it draws on um, your mental library in, in mm -hmm. most interesting ways. Um, it ends with um, a reference to uh, Camus mm -hmm. and the myth of uh, Sisyphus okay. and how <laughs> mm -hmm. basically that woman's story allows you to reinterpret mm -hmm. um, one of the basic tenets of um, French existentialism. So... Yeah, I think it's a book that has everything. Mm, okay. Thank you for a very nice conversation. Thank you. Mm -hmm.